briefly, but there are several things that just simply deserve to be mentioned. We are so thankful and so happy that the Green Hill congregation has celebrated their 100th anniversary today. And they had over 400 in attendance. And it was just a tremendous day that I'm told there. And we rejoice with them and we are so thankful. We know several uh, here in this congregation have roots or connections there and was even there today. And we're so thankful for that. And we just hope that they continue to do well. And we're thankful for God's kingdom everywhere that it meets. You have already noticed, several of you have already made comments about how we finally have light in the front and uh, we are so thankful for that. I know not everything needs to be bright. Uh, You probably would like to see less. You probably like the shadow on this face, but let me tell you, reading from the scriptures up here uh, is really amazing the difference when when, uh, your Bible actually has light shining on it. And uh, if you just look straight up, that's a long way up. And there's not a lot of people that wait in line to do that. And we are so thankful for Brett Hampton and for Tom Gambrell and for Brother Albert England uh, that have come and worked many, many hours uh, just in replacing the lights in the front part here. There are so many in this congregation that, that do so much. They find their place and they do their part. And I, I just want to encourage you, be sure that, that you find your place in that and that you do your part wherever it is. Uh, last Sunday evening, uh, my family thanked you for the, uh, the fellowship gathering and for the celebration of the 10th year anniversary. The celebration was definitely not deserved. We really enjoyed it. We thank you so much. Uh, We thank you for your kindness in doing that. We thank the Myers and the McIndoos and others that had part in putting that together. I I thank the elders for the opportunity to work with them and them uh, wanting to do that. That means a whole lot. And and even above uh, the monetary gift and and all your kindness and the letters that were written, uh, all of it was just wonderful. But even more than all that, it's just an opportunity on a daily basis to work with you. It truly is is a pleasure. It is a blessing to us and, and what you mean to us and, and to us as a family. Uh, I, I can't put into words, but we could talk hours about it if you want to. Thank you so much. Um, we do look forward to family day. Family day is just a week away. And so if you haven't already made those phone calls and gone by your family's homes and and invited them, be sure this evening or tomorrow that you get those invitations out. There are postcards. There there were signs for individuals to pick up and put in their yard earlier today. I think all those are gone. But be sure that you do that. Let me quickly mention some bullet things that are very, very important about this. All adult Bible classes will be combined next Sunday. This will be their only combined adult Bible class this quarter uh, to our knowledge at this point, but it will be this Sunday. So be sure teachers and take note of that, that all will be in here. And we look forward to hearing the message from Brother Paul Helton throughout the day. As mentioned this morning, he did grow up in the Hermitage congregation. He's a preacher and he's a counselor. And also just a little side note of interest, CMT's program on television, World's Strictest Parents. You may have seen him in an episode of that. It was a very, very good show that that he did with that. We look forward to them being here uh, with us Sunday. Sign up at the Visitor Center tonight if you haven't already signed up for your food. Also, please remember to leave a little bit early from home next Sunday morning so that it'll give you time to drop off your food. There will be areas designated for drop-off points for your food And uh, so as you enter the parking lot, you will see those places. Be sure and drop off your food. And then if you're healthy and and you're able to do this, then drive over to the 2040 building. And and we can get at least 70 cars parked legally there. Go on out in the grass. Let's try to get at least 
80, 90, 100 vehicles up there. The tent's going to take up several of our spots here. Plus, we just simply don't have enough parking unless we use the 2040 building parking every Sunday. So uh, be sure and leave a little bit early so we give you time to do that. There are disposable pans that you're being asked to use uh, to prepare your food that you sign up to, to fix. Those pans are on the doorways uh, at the exits on your way out this evening. Be sure and pick those up. And uh, as I already mentioned, be sure and look for the places to drop off uh, your food there. We do look so forward to Family Day. It always is a, a wonderful day. It's a wonderful day of fellowship. It's a wonderful day for us to study God's Word about a very important topic. It's a wonderful day to be able to greet a lot of visitors, encourage them uh, to grow closer to God. And so be praying about all of that, and let's make sure we do our part for it to be a success. And speaking of success, we're thankful for the successful Ladies' Day that took place yesterday, and all the ladies that spoke in that, and the ladies that attended that. And we are thankful that our youth had a successful weekend at Rush and that they are back with us and for them investing their life and their time in spiritual endeavors such as that. And we're thankful for Meals on Wheels. You work every week of the year in this and tonight's one time during the year uh, where we kind of pause and we give a big thank you to all those involved in that and all those that want to be involved in it are invited to a meal that will follow this. And uh, we are thankful for each one of you that are part of that. And again, we mentioned, as already in the announcements, the inner city ministry is a great ministry. So many of you have been involved in it. Uh, be sure and see either Jamie or Jeremy. Will you guys raise your hands? Jamie or Jeremy back here on the back wall over here. Be sure and see them after services. If you want to be involved in it, it'll continue again this Monday evening and the Monday evenings throughout the semester, the school semester. So if you haven't been involved in that and you want to know more about it, see those guys after services. They'd be glad to tell you about ways that you can be involved in it. Have you ever thought about in the Bible, there are some very, very important questions. Now, that doesn't take any of us by surprise, but just think for a few moments. There are some questions that are so important, we have to do something with them. And if we don't, everything weighs in the balances of whether or not we do deal with these questions wisely. The week before Jesus would be crucified, he turned to the Pharisees and he asked them a question that is such an important question that really the entire time tonight, I'd like for us to ask this question to ourselves lay the groundwork about what set this question up, and then at the end of this lesson, just give an observation of what should we do with this question. Look with me, if you will, to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and let's look at 42. You see, back in 41, he's talking to the Pharisees while they were gathered together, Matthew 22 and verse 41, and this is what he said to them. This is the question. What do you think about the Christ? I'm going to pause for about five seconds here. And I want you to answer that question in your mind. And if you say, well, I, I don't know exactly what to do that. Imagine you're sitting down with, uh, with a youth. Maybe you're sitting down with your grandchild or your child or a neighboring uh, a child from your neighborhood. And they're, they're maybe they're fifth or sixth grade. And they say, you know, I, I've never been to church. And I, I hear about Christ. And, and I don't know anything about Christ. Why should I believe in Christ? And, and I want you to think about this question. What do you think about the Christ? How would you answer that in your life? What do you think about the Christ? I can't think of a more important question for us to ask tonight. Our life is totally different based upon how we answer that. Our eternity can be different 
based upon how we answer that. There are some that have given no thought to the Christ. And their life is worse because of that. And their eternity has no hope. There are others that have learned a lot about the Christ. And intellectually, they can give you a lot of answers about the Christ. But they don't live any differently because of the Christ. And so really, what difference is it for them than them and an atheist? I think about the times, and I know this could be multiplied many times over in this room, but I can just tell you what has, I have seen and what I have experienced in this area. And I know many of you have experienced this. I think about the times that, that I've tried to help those who come from a background of very little knowledge of the Christ. And a lot of the time, of course, their first perception is about God's people. That's what people first formulate about their perception of God is what they see in God's people. And I think about several times individuals have said to me, I I just want some kind of relationship like you and Tracy have. Or I just want to have kids that respect their parents like like your kids do. You know that we don't have anything perfect in our family. But you know, I never let an opportunity like that pass if we're in discussion without saying, do you realize the very thing that you admire is because Christ is in our lives? Friends, I can honestly say, I don't know if Tracy and I would still be married if Christ were not living in our life. I can almost rest assured I wouldn't be a father that anybody would say, you've raised respectful children if Christ were not alive in my life and in the life of my children. Friends, this morning or this evening, when we think about this question, what do you think about the Christ? Can we all agree that Christ has made all of the difference? That the things that we enjoy as a church family, someone says, I love the Mount Juliet congregation. There just seems to be a lot of peace and a lot of harmony. People seem to genuinely love God. They, they seem to have such a, an outward approach where, where they're constantly looking to the needs of others. Friends, do you realize everything like that is described has nothing to do with us individually. It has everything to do with Christ living in us. What do you think of the Christ? We can't take any credit. We can't take any glory. The good things that happen in our lives as Christians is because of Christ. The things that we enjoy in His church where they are genuine blessings. Where we would say, I wouldn't want to live on this earth without those blessings. I wouldn't want to live on this earth without the blessing of a church family like this. I wouldn't want to live on this earth to know if I didn't know that there were others that would stand beside me and they would give their life for me. Friends, none of us can take credit for that. But because of Christ, all of us can be blessed with it. So, Jesus looks to a group. Number one, they don't think He is the Christ. But even more than that, when He says, what do you think of the Christ? He wasn't standing there at that moment saying, look, I am Jesus Christ and I'm asking you, what do you think about me? That wasn't his approach right here. He wasn't at this moment trying to prove to them, I am the Messiah. Number one, they didn't believe it. 
And so what he's trying to do is step away from that and come at another angle and say, without us talking about who I am, let's just talk for a moment. Who do you believe? The, what do you think about the Christ? The Christ simply meant the glorified one. A lot of times that's where we would think of the Messiah. And so he's talking to them from, if you will, an intellectual basis. What do you think of the Christ? What do you think of the Messiah? And tonight, everything rests upon that. There's a man in Pittsburgh. His last name's Walters. He's a member of the Lord's Church. He has a son who's a part of Caribbean treasure hunters. They dive, not full-time, but periodically, whenever they think they have found a place where there might be a sunken ship, they'll go out and dive. Through the time, he's recovered silver bars and treasures that have been under the salt water for hundreds of years. His son was working in a condominium complex as it was under construction in Florida. The first day he was working there, he noticed that there was an ugly bar that propped open the door. And he walked by that, not paying any attention to it, just like the other workers' day all throughout the day. The next day, he had to reach down and move the bar. And as he did, he realized that that bar was encrusted. But yet, inside the bar, there was no evidence of decay of the bar itself. Immediately, from his experience, he thought to himself, that feels like what objects feel like when they've been under the ocean for hundreds of years. So he picked the bar up and he examined it carefully to see if by chance this bar would have a stamp on it of destination point. And just as he thought, it was originally destined for Spain. He walked into the office of the man that owned that condominium that was being built. And he said, sir, Do you realize that you have a bar of silver here? Just using it to prop open the door? And to his surprise, the man said, Yeah, I realize that. But I know nobody's going to know what it is. And so I know I can leave it out there as a way to prop open the door and everybody will pass by it as if it's worthless. Now the guy went on to tell his father this story and say, I was a little bit angry that there would be something with such history and of such value and he would treat it in such a careless way. But friends, how many of us do that with Christ? Christ is the greatest blessing that we could ever receive in our life. And yet sometimes we treat that blessing so careless. And so tonight, as we study this, I hope all of us will deal honestly with the question. What do you think of the Christ? Let's see the setting of this, and it'll take at least half or more of our time. And so at the end, we'll draw the conclusion very quickly. But what is the setting for this? We've already mentioned the fact that this is the week that Jesus Christ will be crucified. It's early in the week. And when we back up to Matthew, the 21st chapter, we see in verse 18 and following that he's cursed the fig tree, and now it has died, and now he's entered into the temple, and he's began teaching. And when he did, in Matthew, the 21st chapter, in 23, the chief priest and the elders there, the people confronted him, and they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus' miracles and his teaching was so powerful, it led them to continually ask, how do you do this? 
Who gives you this authority? How do you have this kind of power? Now notice, Jesus was not out just to prove himself. When he was asked these questions, he seemed to always answer them in such a way to give the people an opportunity to grow themselves. And so instead of just answering, the Father gave me the authority to do this, which would have been a correct and a very easy answer to make, he gives them the opportunity to grow through this. And, and I want to especially begin here tonight because it ties so much into what we've studied the last couple of weeks about John the Baptist. And so he goes to talk with them in 24. He answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So now he's going to turn the table on them. Let's help you grow. So here's the question. The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now wouldn't it be great if these individuals were at least, even if they were wrong, at least they were men of integrity so they would answer what they believed. This is a little bit sideline point and I won't develop it, but I'm just telling you that it really, to me, is, is so ingenuine. Whenever organizations, they don't want to really tell you who they are. They don't want to really tell you who sponsors them. You see schools that you try to figure out who do you align with and they're so vague you don't know who they align with. Those are the ones that Jesus didn't have much to do with. Friends, even if I don't stand with you, I'd like for you to at least have enough integrity to say, I'm just going to come clean. This is who I am. The Pharisees could have easily answered, Hey, you may not like the answer, Jesus, but we'll tell you who we are. So Jesus is going to see if they'll own up to who they are. But you know what? They think about this and they say among themselves, their reasoning is, if we say that John's baptism is from heaven, they're going to ask us, why haven't we been baptized by John's baptism? So we can't say that one. And if we say it's of men... Which way's the wind blowing? Oh, the multitude here today, they were pro-John. We can't get all this multitude enraged against us. So we can't say that we think it's from earth either. And so you know what they say? 27. They answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And so Jesus gives them three parables to say to them, I want to tell you who you are. And it's not a pretty picture of who you are. First parable is very short. He tells them about a man in verse 28 that had a, a vineyard. And he sent two men, uh, two of his sons out to work in the vineyard. The first, as he was told to go out and work, said, I won't go. But then later he regretted what he said. He repented and he went out and he worked. But then the second son, he was told to go in the vineyard and he said, I won't go. And he didn't go. And so now Jesus takes that lesson and he says, you know who that first son is a representation of? That first son in 31 toward the, the middle of the verse, assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Do you realize, as we mentioned this morning, when John began his ministry, it wasn't just to transition the faithful Jews over to Christianity. He literally had a ministry that was evangelistic. 
He was taking individuals that were throwing their lives away spiritually with prostitution, tax collectors that so often were very dishonest. They were considered criminals of their day. And John was literally convincing those people in the name of God to turn their life around. And so Jesus says, do you realize that there are tax collectors and prostitutes that when the truth is taught, they have first rejected it, but now they're returning to it. And then he says, but you're like the second son. You're going to continue to reject not only John, but even the one that is greater than him that's coming, Jesus. And you're going to allow the tax collectors and the prostitutes to enter the kingdom of heaven before you. So his first identity to say, let me tell you who you are. He's saying, I just want to show you how rebellious you are. But then the second parable he teaches them, he says, I want to show you how violent you've been. He tells another parable beginning in verse 33, and it's about a landowner that when he bought the land, he planted a vineyard and he built towers and built oil, uh, uh, wine presses, and, and then he leased the vineyard out. And when it came time for the collection of the lease uh, to be made, he sent in servants. And when the servants came to collect for the lease, they killed one they beat one, and they stoned one to death. When the landowner didn't receive his income, he sent another group of servants. They did the same thing again. When he still didn't receive his income, the landowner sent his son. And they killed his son and tried to claim the inheritance. And then Jesus, after telling them that parable, He says to them, look at the end of 40, or look at 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they answer, they say in 41, He'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit of the season. And Jesus then, in 42 Quote Psalm 118, 22 and 23, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And after he teaches a couple more verses, notice what their understanding became in verse 45. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, They feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. You see, again, it's all about what's everybody else going to think. The reason among themselves, they say, this guy is too sharp for us. We try to debate him and he always wins. We try to put him in his place and he always puts us in our place. I tell you what we're going to have to do. Let's kill him. Well, again, what's the crowd going to think of that? Well, the crowd is too large, and the crowd right now is too dedicated to him. We can't kill him at this moment. Isn't it interesting how quick the crowd will turn? This is the beginning of the week, and by the end of the week, the crowd is going to be crying, crucify him, crucify him. It shows you the power of leadership, and it shows you how if you become a shallow follower in that you believe anything that you hear, how far off track you can get with the wrong kind of leadership. But at this point in the week, The crowd's not going to turn against him at this point in the week. And so Jesus teaches one more parable. We won't take the time to go in depth of that parable, but it's a parable about a wedding, and the ones who were first invited would not come, and they were the representation of the Pharisees. They were first, the Jews were first invited, and they would not come. 
And after these three parables, these men have come to the conclusion we can get the crowd to turn on Jesus if we just make him look weak or unintelligent. And so they begin to try to ask him questions where he would trip up in the answer and the crowd would cease being amazed and astonished at him and then they can fulfill their goal of killing Jesus. So the first question they ask as we go down to the 22nd chapter in verse 15, and the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. You see, that was the whole purpose of these questions. Let's entangle him before the multitude so that they can hear this. And so they talk about taxes. And, and since Jesus is, is not uh, following any other men, is he going to be willing to pay Caesar taxes? And they thought they'd have him entrapped in this. And so they asked the question, should we pay taxes? Are you going to pay taxes? And in his wisdom, after we hear it, it sounds so simple. But at that moment, I don't think to any of us, the answer would have been simple. But in his wisdom, he just asked for a coin. Can, can I borrow a coin that one of you are going to pay taxes with? Oh, okay. Now let's look at the image. Look at the superscription here. Who's there? Caesar? You can almost imagine him tossing it back and saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God. Now, I don't know how that impresses you. That impresses me. But if you want to see the story, look at 22. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went on their way. That was so powerful to them. After one question, they said, we've got to get away from this guy. We were doing this to make him look ridiculous to the crowd, and he's making us look ridiculous. We've got to separate ourselves from him. Now keep in mind, the Sadducees and the Pharisees did not get along, and they were not united in hardly anything except whenever they wanted to prove Jesus wrong. That would be one time that they would unite. And so when they saw that the Pharisees had been pushed off to the side with Jesus' intelligence, the Sadducees step up. This is their opportunity to test Jesus and put him in his place. Keep in mind, they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in souls or spirit. And so with that understanding, they have a question that deals with that. A woman has a husband, and the husband dies before they're able to have children. One of the old law, she was to marry another brother in that family so that seed could be born to that family and the family name could be carried on. So she marries a second husband, and he dies before they can bear children, a third husband. The scenario continues until there are seven brothers that have married this one woman, and all seven of them are dead. And then the question is simply this, who's... Husband, whose wife will she be in heaven? Now Jesus very boldly proclaims to them how mistaken they are. See there in 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. There was two things. Number one, you're mistaken not knowing the scriptures. And number two, nor the power of God. You see, they didn't believe in the power of the resurrection. Friends, tonight... We need to ask ourselves, do we really believe? And when I talk about believe, I'm not just talking about intellectually. I'm talking about, does it change your life? Does it empower you? Do you believe in a God who has power over the resurrection? Do you believe that this life, compared to the life that is to come, is just a short hiccup of time? Do you believe that everything that we're living for that is great and is as eternal, it is still to come? Can you imagine how different the Sadducees would approach life? Because they literally thought, when I die, it's all over. There's nothing else. And he says, I'll tell you what your problem is. Not only do you not know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. We serve a God who is so powerful. 
He's so powerful that He can promise us a life that's beyond our imagination after this earth. And that's why it's so important that He is our God while we're on this earth. Now once He silenced them, look at verse 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at His teachings. And so then the Pharisees get enough courage to come up and try it one more time. In 35, they send a lawyer, notice, to test him. They're trying to put him between a rock and a hard place. They're going to ask him, which is the greatest commandment? Why is that a catch-22? Maybe it's some kind of reasoning like this. If he says, I can't just pick out one of the laws that's so important. All of them are important. They're going to say, oh, you don't really know the law, do you? Or maybe if he says, oh, I can pick out one. They're going to say, oh, so you are belittling the other laws. We don't know exactly what their approach was, but in their mind, they thought that he was in a catch-22, that he'd never be able to answer this. Instead, Jesus very eloquently and truthfully says, oh, I can tell you the first and greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I'll go ahead and tell you, even though you didn't ask, the second commandment's likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when we see now, verse 41, it kind of puts everything into perspective. Look again at 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked, you see what's happening here? Before they can scatter again. You can imagine at this point, he's put them in their place again. They're probably ready to retreat again and, and maybe either collect themselves or call it a day. And it's almost as if Jesus says, whoa, before you depart, you've been asking me questions. Let me ask you a question. What do you think of the Christ? Oh, to get more narrow than that, Whose son is he? Oh, they could easily answer that. That was no problem. They say, he's the son of David. That was true. And then Jesus asks them a question that changes everything in their understanding if they would have been willing to learn. 43, he says to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, set on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. What was the power of what Jesus was saying? If, if the Messiah is going to be born from the lineage of David... How can while David is alive, he refer to that same individual as the Lord of his life? Right now, you're not going to refer to someone who is going to be born several generations down into your lineage right now. You're not going to say, oh, I was talking to them today. And you're definitely not going to say, I submit my life to them. They are Lord of my life. Because you see, the point Jesus is making is the point that he wanted them to realize. We can't just form our own concept of the Messiah. We have to let the Messiah be who the Messiah is and submit our life to Him. You see, they had a misconception of what the Messiah would look like. As we talked just last week or the week before that in the sermon, remember how they wanted that Davidic kingdom where the Messiah would come like the son of David and he would reign on this earth and he would overthrow Rome and and he would set up a powerful kingdom. And notice the problem here. It's all about physical things. And Jesus, as he asked them, what do you think of the Christ? He was trying to get them to think spiritually. 
And friends, that is our struggle day in and day out. And that's been the struggle of humankind probably as as long as we have been created. And it is to continually remind ourselves that just as the Messiah, while he was on this earth, he was deity one part, but also at the same time, he was humanity. And we don't break down in that same way, but in a sense, we have a parallel. And that is, we are soul as well as body. And too often times we live as if we're only body. And we start making our life all about these physical things. And the Lord is pleading with us, what do you think of the Christ? Are you willing to allow Him to be Lord of your life? Because things are going to be different if you understand from David's perspective that the Messiah was His Lord, but He was also His offspring. He was deity as well as human. Our life is going to be different if we realize I am soul. God has breathed into me a breath of life and I'm going to live far beyond my death physically. I am alive right now in the physical body, but I am a soul that will live forever. What do you think of Christ? Whenever we can take and we can answer that question to say, He is my Lord and I want to be God's child and I want to live with them, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, I want to live with them for an eternity. When that's the case, everything about our life becomes about the Lord. Can you honestly say to yourself tonight, I believe that I'm a part of a cause, the cause of Christianity that is far greater than any of us individually. Do you believe that? And if we believe that, we're not going to have misconceptions about turning God into into a Santa Claus that that we just offer Him a to-do list every day of the things we want. We're not going to turn God into a parent that is a doting parent that spoils us and He gives us everything we want. Friends, am I comfortable to say, my God, I'm willing to allow Him to use me and whatever prospers the kingdom. Think on that. Are you willing to do that? Even if how He uses you is not comfortable? Even if how He uses you doesn't give you much more days of life? What do you think of the Christ? Are you willing to exalt Him so much that you're willing to say, Lord, I'm just one small tool in Your kingdom. And however you need to use me to advance Your kingdom, Your will be done. And we close with Philippians, the first chapter. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Philippians, the first chapter. And this is the close, not like the beginning of the close. This is the close. You've been very gracious. We're over time. But but please think about how powerful this is. When when Paul says this, can, can I say this? Can you say this? And it all depends. We don't say this based on our own summary. We say this when we understand who the Christ is. When we understand who the Christ is, it changes us. We don't change us and then figure out who the Christ is. We figure out who the Christ is and it changes us. Notice what Paul says here in verse 20 of Philippians, the first chapter, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life, or by death. Paul, what do you want? He says, I see the Christ as one who is 
so awesome and so grand that I'm willing to use whatever I am to magnify Him. Paul, what if God wants to magnify His cause through your death? I'm willing. Paul, what if, what if your, God's cause can be magnified based on the way you handle suffering? Persecute me. What about the way you handle sickness? I'll magnify God. Paul, what about if there's some people in your life that they make your life miserable? I'll magnify God by the way they make my life miserable and the way I react to it. Friends, there's a question that you and I cannot afford to get wrong. The answer, we have to get it right. What do you think of the Christ? Nothing else matters. Tonight, if we can help you answer that, comes as we stand and as we sing. Sweet to trust in Jesus, just to...